Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are looking once again at the golf industry and how it is faring well over a year after COVID-19 brought unmatched growth in participation and purchasing. Plus, we will dive into the biggest growth area in the golf equipment industry. Of course, to get this deep into the numbers, we need an expert in data. So we welcome John Krisnowak partner with Golf Data Tech back to the range. John, thanks for joining us once again. Thanks, Ralph. Glad to be here. The world shut down in mid-March 2020 amid pandemic fears and a stunning thing started happening in April of last year. Golf courses began to reopen and people who had been locked in from work and other hobbies flocked to the fairways and greens to play their favorite sport, to return to the sport, or even starting from the very beginning. And I know we talked about this before, but Let's set a baseline. How busy were golf courses by April and May 2020? Well, April was still pretty quiet. You know, the most of the places were still in, in some sort of a lockdown. Um, May, on a national basis, you started to see things open up more and more. But there were still pockets and, and some significant pockets. Like um, here in Illinois, we only were allowed uh, to play in twosomes. And they had to be, you had to be spaced 15 minutes apart and you had to walk. You know, I, I know California had some certain restrictions in most of the state. There were some, some sections that didn't. But um, April, May were still kind of rough months for us in 2020. And then when June hits, we start to see things really ramp up um, on, on a national basis. And uh, we certainly have grown dramatically since then. Well, I should tell our audience, if you'd like a full breakdown of 2020, check out uh, my conversation with John from the end of March of this year. That was really eye-opening. But 2020, overall, there was a 14% growth in play despite losing six weeks of action due to the lockdown. Mm -hmm. The big question this year would be how much of this new golf audience, how many returning players and newbies would stick with the game? And now... You have numbers from May of 2021 really kind of giving us an idea of what happened. What did you learn? Yeah, well, through May, our, our rounds played are up 34%. I mean, it, it's just a nice, healthy continuation of, of what we've seen. But as I said, May of last year was still a little um, sketchy on, on a national basis because there were still a lot of markets that weren't really cooking all the way yet. But what we have found... Uh, when we dig into the data and, and we find most manufacturers as they look at their, um, their businesses, they also are looking at comparing to 2019 and not just 2020 because mm -hmm. 2019 is the last normal year, so to speak. And um, so even though we're up 34% versus, you know, 2020 levels, 
people are kind of look at that little side-eyed and say, well, what is what does that really mean? Because, you know, the country really wasn't working properly yet. Uh, but when we go back and look at it compared to 2019, we still see double-digit increases. So it's still a nice, healthy uh, road. You know, there's still a lot more people playing golf, uh, and the people who are playing are playing a lot more often. So it's, it's putting the, um, the industry in a very good place. One thing that did happen in 2020, just out of sheer coincidence, was there ever a bad day in, in the golf season? Of 20? I mean, it seemed like not only were people going to play, yeah. but the weather was cooperating and, and those numbers are going up. And, and recently where you are in the Chicago area, it's been raining a lot. So when we look at July numbers, it's not going to be 31 days yeah. of golfing weather that you're going to be able to compare yeah you're absolutely right i mean we it was we had a year we refer to it as the year of perfect weather i think it was back in 2012 where we just rounds played were through the roof and it it was from february on even in northern markets it was beautiful weather we had very little rain um same thing last year we had just a year where we had very little precipitation the, it was warm, but it, it was playable. Obviously, a lot of golfers enjoy being out when it's warm. Maybe not in the hundreds, but uh, if it's in the in the eighties and nineties, they're happy to be out there. And so we we saw uh, you know a perfect year last year weatherwise. This year, yeah, I think we won't see as many opportunities to play this year as we did last year. It just would be unlikely, just because the weather is uh, you know. Is, we don't get too many years where you don't have much precipitation. Well, and to put it in perspective for the folks listening is when you look at the main numbers from this year, every place is up except one region that had a 56% increase in precipitation. Yes. But yeah, exactly. And that is a, you know, temperatures can be high or low and, and people deal with that. But when it rains, uh, unless you live in, in the Northwest or perhaps in, in Minnesota or Wisconsin, where you just, you, you know, you have a very short season, so you put up with almost anything. Uh, if you're in Southern California and it's too rainy and it starts to rain or it's too hot, you'll just go, nah, maybe I'll play tomorrow. Because we're all playing in January. Would, that's not an option if you live in Chicago. <laughs> when we look around in all areas of society right now, we are still way behind in inventory for all sorts of products. I mean, and that's true from cars all the way down. Has the golf industry been able to keep up with sales figures that they want with the popularity of play where it is? Well, no, I, I think every manufacturer continues to struggle with, um, with their ability to produce to, to orders. Uh, on the club side, we've seen a, a tremendous um issue with with getting components so it is it, particularly impacting the the custom fitters and the custom fitting side of the business because you go in there and it, it you may be getting quoted eight to ten weeks for delivery you know once again if you live in southern california where you have a year-round golf market that's great uh, it just means i have to wait a while to get it but here in chicago it's now july you're telling me it's 10, 12 weeks. It's now going to be here end of September or October. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll just wait till next year. So it's starting to have an effect on demand, but so far demand remains very strong and virtually every club manufacturer is 
shipping whatever they can. They, they can't build their own inventories in any way. Um, on the ball side, it's uh, it's challenging because of raw materials. There were some uh, chemical issues and some um, you know petroleum issues, and, and that's all messing with uh, the ability to get to get the raw materials, which has been making golf balls very difficult to make. And um, so that side has problems. And then you have you know categories like. Uh, apparel and um, shoes where it's those are all made in or primarily made anyway in in Asia and the shipping to get them here has been very difficult you know I've heard all kinds of horror stories about uh, several months worth of inventory being on a boat or on a ship but you know sitting outside Long Beach they can't get it in and when they get it in there's no trucks to get it out so you know, there's a lot of things adding up to a shortage of materials. I don't want to cause another rush on Costco, but <laughs> is there going to be a problem with ball supply going forward? No, I think people are dealing with it, you know, and, and a lot of it will be when you go into your retailer, there are balls there. Um, the reality is, whereas they might normally have 120 dozen of this particular product in inventory at all times. They may be sitting on 30 or 40 dozen. And so there, and there may be periods where they come and go and they go out of inventory, but there, there's no real, you know, to the best of my knowledge, there's no chance that we're going to run out of golf balls. Um, and, and there's a lot of, you know, great used golf ball places if you had to. Because <laughs> those recycle really well. <laughs> Through my work, I've talked with so many different manufacturers mm -hmm. and they've experienced plenty of backlogs in all levels of equipment but to their point the biggest thing they see is there's still a demand right. so they understand that they're facing a battle and getting stuff to market but they know that there are people really clamoring for their products so they're still feeling pretty good about it yeah well that very much is the case there's just a, a tremendous amount of demand and the demand which i think most people expected to start to slow down by this point really hasn't mm -hmm. it's continued um you know in categories like golf bags i would love to know where all the golf bags are going because there are virtually bags come off the boat or shipped to the individual brands who you know, send them to the retailers who sell them and they're all gone i mean there's just very little i was in a off course retailer a couple of days ago and there were virtually no golf bags, mm -hmm. uh, you know. So if there was a category that had issues, that you know, I think golf bags is one right now that the demand has just been so great, and they're uh, just haven't been able to even come close to filling it. And then I think there's also a matter of people are a little afraid that at some point this demand is going to slow, and if you're you know bringing in all this stuff, you got orders out there for massive numbers what's going to happen you're going to end up with you're going to have all this inventory and, and perhaps demand won't be there so i i think the the manufacturers are trying to be smart about it. they're bringing in as much as they can but they're always cognizant of right at, at some point the music stops and you got to grab a chair and you don't want to be you know sitting with a lot of inventory when that happens specifically with golf bags i i can think of one company in particular where they had said okay if you want this color we can get it to you right now yeah if you want this color, and, they, and I'm talking, this was back in May, they said this. Yeah. If you want this other color, it would be available in August. Yeah. 
<laughs> if you want this color, it would be November. Yeah. So it's been a battle for them. Yeah, it absolutely has been a real challenge. Tracking rounds and equipment sales, though, just a portion of what you do at Golf Data Tech, as you've just released the eighth edition of your report on the evolution of custom fitting mm -hmm. in the game. Before we get to the latest, when did you start looking at this area of golf equipment? Well, we've been tracking custom fitting since 2001, and, and we do it a lot of ways. We, you know, we have our, our retail sell-through data, which, which we can uh, get insights into what's selling in custom fitting. But we've been doing the consumer side where we actually go out and ask consumers their opinions, their attitudes, their plans about purchasing, their past purchase habits within the custom fitting area. So we've been doing it since 2001. As you said, this is our, I mean, uh, this is our eighth edition of it. And we basically do it every three years with the, you know, the rough, there's occasionally where it goes two years and then four years, but on average about uh, every three years. And it, it's just a, a fascinating category. And you kind of see all these changes, the ups and the downs of, uh, of a, a category in motion. Since 2001, I mean, my goodness, Fitting has evolved from an art of visual evaluation and strike plates mm -hmm. to technical studies that were really evaluating player swings. And now they're almost entirely using launch monitors, focusing entirely on ball performance, because really that's what matters most. Yeah. I mean, we, we, when we started in 2001, uh, that was two years before uh, TrackMan was uh, created. And it was, uh, I think, three or four years before TaylorMade launched the R7, which was the first adjustable driver. So we've been tracking this back when it was uh, pieces of masking tape, a, um, a lie board, which could have been plywood, might have been plastic, uh, and a ruler. And that's how you got custom fit. And back then, the custom fitting was you could get two degrees up, two degrees flat, and standard lie. In your irons, you, nobody really got fit for drivers back then because there was no adjustability. I mean, you might get a, a driver that was long, if you wanted a half inch long or half inch short, but there was you know a few lofts offered and that was it. There was no ability to adjust the actual head. Um, and, and so when it started, it was a very simplistic approach uh, as I referred to in, when I wrote this edition of, of it. There was no electricity required. You know, it was, <laughs> and people who, and kids today would look at that and go, that's not custom fitting. Well, for the day, it was cutting edge, you know, but uh, things have changed, that's for sure. The idea of adding weight was lead tape. I mean, that's all that was available. Well, lead tape, and then you could adjust swing weights by adjusting lengths. Yeah. And, you know, there you could, you could kind of, yeah, I mean, when I first started in, in the golf industry and the manufacturing side, I was back in the 80s uh, with Spalding, and it was just fascinating to me because we had a gentleman, uh, Jim Long, who was um, our senior vice president of engineering, and Jim was, he had to be in his 70s at that point, and he had actually worked with Bobby Jones when Bobby Jones was the vice president at Spalding. And he described, he was one of the lead engineers. He was a young engineer in his early 20s when he worked with Jones on um, the first uh, camera motion where they actually saw the ball flatten and they were taking the strobe photography to show the ball flattening against his 
uh, driver phase. And, and, and then he described how it, the um, people would come, or, or Bobby Jones would come in, and, and the way he developed his club set, it wasn't, you know, here's a set for you to do. He literally would pick them up, feel them, hit a few shots with them, and then decide if he wanted this club or that club. And over time, that was what custom clubs were back then. I mean, it was it was because they were still hickory shafts in some cases, you know. So it was just it was just a very different world. Right. Um, so custom fitting continues to evolve, and, and certainly the digital technology we have today is a completely different uh, way to, way to get it done. And it's a uh, it's you know extremely accurate. It's easy to do. Uh, other than you can get pretty tired hitting that many shots. Um, you know, try try to hold your swing together for a uh, a full bag fitting is is a, a you know mm-hmm. I, it's like, I believe that's for the young folks because you don't want to do a full bag fitting at, at my age. <laughs> what information were you seeking from respondents in putting together this report? Well, we we touch on all different. Um, segments of this from the the manufacturers you know your perceptions of manufacturers and their ability to do custom fitting uh we get into uh, detail on retail sell-through and, and retailers who are who are selling them uh the the custom fitters themselves uh where do you go get custom fit how much do you pay um you know your satisfaction levels and, and one of the things we found is that uh golfers are really satisfied with these high-tech digital fittings um, that over the years, things have been fairly flat until the last three, the last two studies where we've seen a real acceleration in customer satisfaction with the fitting process. And, and they're very, even though it's not inexpensive to go to a custom fitter, they walk away generally feeling pretty good about what happened. Did you find a disparity in terms of that satisfaction based off of the type of fitting that somebody might have gone through? Uh, yeah, certainly there are some, you know, some locations and some channels that do a better job than others. Uh, as you'd expect, the golf professional, even though when we started doing this in 2001, the golf professional was doing half of the custom fittings. You know, and then you had a, a variety of other people who were, were doing it. Uh, with the off-course specialty being the second biggest, and by off-course specialty, we mean you know a retailer that primarily sells golf equipment. That's a, a big box, doesn't have a, a golf course out the back, so it could be a single operator or it could be a, a chain. And um, so it used to be the the off or the uh, greengrass guys dominated, and the off-course was um, second. And then about 2006, we saw a flip. And the off-course specialty, and then for the next 12 years, the off-course specialty really was dominant. Uh, and then recently, we've seen the uh, custom fitters, uh, you know, custom fitting specialists, the guys that all they do is custom fitting. They're not really selling golf balls. They're not really selling, you know, apparel. They're just selling uh, custom fit golf clubs. They really accelerated, and they're about as big now uh, as the um, off-course specialty. And but the golf pro, it's interesting. Even though they're only doing about half as much of the fitting as they once did, satisfaction with it with being fit by the golf pro remains the highest of any any channel. People love, you know, they think their golf pro knows what they're doing. They get a good fitting, 
and they're happy with that. However, you know, there's uh, fewer and fewer golf pros who are spending the time, money, and effort to really do that as part of their job. I mean, for a lot of them, it's not part of their job. They're, you know, they're basically in charge of golf operations, not so much selling equipment. If a course or a professional is not going to invest in all the technology that you can find in so many different retail operations, they're not doing their job by not saying, look, I, I can't fit you as well as this place can. Yeah. And, and you usually find the guys who are pretty good at fitting, they probably have an affiliation with, with the teaching side, mm-hmm. you know, whether they, and, and they're using digital technology, whether it's TrackMan right. or, or Foresight or, uh, whoever it is. Um, but you know, it's certainly the systems themselves have become kind of the star in a lot of this. Although it was interesting when we asked people, what's the most important thing about being custom fit. The first thing that comes, the thing that's by most important by far was, uh, the custom fitter themselves. So that human connection is still really important. And, uh, because I, I think a lot of the perception is a lot of the digital data is, is quote unquote the same, you know? So I, if I go to be fitted a custom fitter and, and then I go to another custom fitter, they'll get about the same data. But for me, it's all about connecting and relating to the fitter himself. And, and that's what really makes a difference. I've had my share of full pack fittings over the years, uh, using various different measurement types, really, I mean, from motion analysis all the way through mm-hmm. to launch monitor. And you mentioned it, it's not a quick process and it can be really overwhelming to do a full bag fitting, yeah. but the best fitters are going to find the answers no matter how well you think you're performed in the bay. Yeah. It's interesting. I, through the years, because as I said, I, I was in the golf club development side for quite a while. And then I've been working with manufacturers for a long time. And then I've also done these custom fitting studies. And part of the fit studies is I actually go get fit. So I go in and I make uh, appointments with custom fitting uh, companies and golf pros, just like a guy off the street. I don't tell them what I'm doing. I'm there to be fit for golf clubs. I pay them for their time, just like everybody else and um, fit me. And so this past a uh, couple of months, I was fit six times. I've been fit well, well over 50 times in my life, but six times in the past, you know, several months. And um, I went in for just a driver fitting because I wanted to keep everything focused and the same. Uh, and interestingly, I came out with uh, five different brands recommended, <laughs> even though all... But how many different brands of shaft? Uh, every, every club had a different shop. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And <laughs> interestingly though, I mean, at, at the beginning, every single, uh, fitter after looking at my, my swing data with my, the driver I had been using had the exact same objective. Mm-hmm. We all identified, we need to reduce backspin. It's too spinny and we need to increase your launch angle slightly, which will help your overall it was just an interesting uh outcome you know something you really you think well won't some of them come up with the exact same thing and no there's you know i think it just goes to show there's there is no absolute right or wrong Mm -hmm. you know you can find something uh you know and some of it is price i mean i will say you know some of them were 
two and a half times more than the other when it came to how expensive they were. Yeah. Some of them were kind of steady, almost stock shafts from a manufacturer and those work fine. So it just, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. I, you know, I refer to it, it's an art, it's not really a science. It's, there's scientific stuff behind it, but it, a lot of ways it is, it's an art form and, and your fitter is your, your guide, you know, and there will kind of lead you through the process. It's long been said that the performance gains from custom fitting for tour pros are minimal but they're crucial to their success. The real gains are going to come with average amateur golfers. To me, I think that the best candidates for a great fitting are those that go in maybe without a lot of equipment knowledge. They're not thinking about brands. They're not thinking about anything. And they just kind of let the process happen and, and they go with the results that the systems tell. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is we, we did find that the among people who said they've never been fit, which was about a, a, a quarter of our total respondents. So mm -hmm. 20, I think it was 27% have never, ever been fit for anything. And when, with that particular group, we then take them and ask them questions about well, why haven't you been fit? What's the reason for that? And, uh, you know, the most common answers are I'm not good enough for that. And I, I never thought of it. So it's like, so the, you're right. Those are people who have no real idea that this could help them. Mm -hmm. But when talking to it, you know, as you spend an hour and a half with a guy, as you're fitter, you end up talking about a lot of different things. It's almost, you know, it's kind of like creating a small relationship during that period. And so I, I kind of went down that path with everybody as I was being fit and asked them, well, who, you know, what about the guys who are, because they, they, everybody was saying how they've seen really high handicaps this, you know, over this past year and a half. Okay. People who, have, like to your point, have never been fit before or have um, uh, people who come in and, and don't have a great deal of knowledge, but their buddy told them, well, you should get fit. So they come in, they get fit. Right. And the outcome, uh, th these guys all believe that they can do wonders for the people who haven't been fit. You know, that they can make them, they're not going to make them a great player necessarily, but they can improve their mistakes and improve their mistakes. Right. And um, they, unfortunately, getting that particular group into the, into the fitting bay is challenging. I know some OEMs are focusing their attention in a big way towards expanding their custom fitting operations internally. Yeah. Uh, it really is a must if they want to get maximum performance and satisfaction from their customers, isn't it? They've got to start thinking about selling clubs that are going to be built versus ones that are right off the rack. Yeah. At, at the premium end of the, of the, uh, golf club spectrum, if you will, the, um, custom fitting is, is all is a necessary thing to be doing. You have to be custom fitting. If you're not, you're you're losing sales um so a lot of the manufacturers have, have adjusted their uh their workflow in their uh assembly lines to to accommodate that and uh at the same time you have the the custom fitting and the custom builders uh in the custom fitting channel you know like a club champion or a cool clubs or a true spec all those guys they build their own product so they're and they and they have a much different assembly operation. So there's a um, you know the, the manufacturers 
are doing it their way and the custom club builders are doing it another way. Uh, but there's, in the end, you, you know, you, you get a good quality product when you have people paying attention. I talked to a lot of people that have returned to the game in the last year mm-hmm. and they're interested in custom fitting. They're leery of the cost of proper custom fitting because everything is worthwhile, but it adds up. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but wonder if there's going to be a market for the secondary club market, used clubs, where people are going to seek out a model from two or three years ago, take that to a local fitter and say, here's my heads, let's find my shafts, which makes it at least quite a bit cheaper, but still custom to them, right. just using a little bit older technology. Yeah, well, and the reality is that people, um, our respondents and the people who take our surveys, their perception and their understanding of what custom fitting is, is, is a little different than uh, what what one of the major manufacturers would like to believe or what a custom fitter would like to believe. Because to them, if I go out on the range and I'm with my golf pro or an assistant pro, or, you know, if I'm hitting balls in a net at, a, at an off course specialty store and I'm on a simulator or a, you know, some sort of a digital device, that's picking up data and I might hit 10, 15 shots. I might hit a couple of different clubs and, and the guy helps me and, and we, you know, maybe try a different shaft or two. He walks away thinking, Hey, I got custom fit for that. The, the true custom fitters would say, oh, God, that's not even custom fit. That's, you know, that's just a demo program. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, so th- there are differences. <laughs> but to your point about cost, it, to be truly custom fit, to sit down with a, a custom fitter for 90 minutes and have them evaluate your swing, uh, go through a, a variety of heads and shafts and uh, ultimately prescribe something that works, that, that is a... Um, an expensive and somewhat involved process as the original equipment manufacturers do expand their custom fitting operations do you think there will be enough people seeking full bag custom sets that'll justify that level of commitment from them we've seen the club champions and and those operations thrive we've seen the 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 off course retailers starting to sell through the options that are made available by uh, companies, but will they be able to generate enough sales through their online portals? Or is this kind of trying to catch up to a horse that's way out of the barn? Well, we actually investigated perceptions of online sitting. Uh, you know, in, 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 we've seen a, a slide over the past um, six years in terms of awareness of custom fitting online you know, online and in phone or um, belief that it's, it works. So the, in terms of will they start to sell a lot of um, custom fit clubs online from, you know, online fittings, I, I don't necessarily see that in the short term. However, I think there's plenty of demand for, for the uh, manufacturers to be making uh, a lot of, you know, what they consider custom clubs, which are um, custom within parameters right. versus, you know, when you go to a, 
a true custom fitter, custom builder, it's uh, you know, you're coloring in without a uh, without lines. But uh, with the the manufacturers, they kind of created the box for you to to create. Um, and so it's a little different. It's funny you mentioned coloring uh, within the lines because ultimately that's what an OEM is going to be able to offer more than anybody yeah. is the ability to change the look of your clubs in a color sense. Yeah, they certainly can. Um, you know, we, we've been uh, doing a lot of work on the online side and, and personalization of product is, you know, is, is a whole different avenue. I mean, there's, you've got the, uh, you've got customization, which is the, the, changing of the physical specs of the product to change how you play with it. Then you've got the personalization, which means I want a green one. You got a blue one and our buddies, you've got a purple one. And, but we all have the same basic club. And, and there's, there is a fair amount of interest in that. We certainly see it in golf balls. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of people buying logoed and personalized golf balls, you know, for themselves. It used to be, you, you know, you bought a logoed golf ball or you got a logo golf ball from Delta airlines or something, but, very few people actually had personalized golf balls, but the personalization side has really uh, accelerated pretty dramatically. No, and it's something that TaylorMade has done for a decade now with custom numbering. Yep. They made a commitment long ago that this is something that we think is going to work, and Srixon has just started doing it as well, but it's something that has served them well because they know that people like their individuality whenever they can get it. Yeah, absolutely. There's always, you know, it's it's almost every category you're in as an American consumer. You see that that uh, deeper and deeper level of personalization, uh, whether it's you know the shirt you wear or whatever. It's uh, people are trying to make it more unique to you, and it's, uh, moving away from the, the the mass production of products. I will freely say that fitting has served me well, especially in the past 17 months. And there are plenty of videos about that on the golf spotlight tracking my progress. But I want to finish up here on the range by asking you, John Krisnoak, you've gone through all these fittings. Is there a club that has come out of it that's like, wow, this thing was special and it's always performed? The next one. <laughs> you know, every I, I, I did get one out of the uh, this last batch, and, and I took it out. And the very first time I played it, I hit uh, eleven out of twelve fairways, and it hit it longer than I can remember hitting in a while. And then you know, it, it's like there's a new club aura that occurs, as you know probably Ralph. You know, you get that new club, and it mm-hmm. just it, it's like magic. Putters are even worse for me, but we won't go down that path. Uh, you know, you have, <laughs> you, you have a couple of great days and then what the heck happened? Where'd the magic go? So I'm, I'm only about, uh, three, four rounds into this new driver. And, um, so far it's, it's done very well, but it's like anything, it, it still comes down to the golf, you know, it can only do so much with the equipment. In case anybody was wondering if you actually heard a call for that answer alone <laughs> says it all. The best club is the next club. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> John, your data fuels so many areas of the golf industry, helping courses and manufacturers to best maximize their reach into the world of players that are out there. Thank you again for the numbers, and we look forward to following those stats moving forward. And thanks for joining us again here on The Range. Thanks, Ralph. Look forward to talking to you again. 
That was John Krasnoak from Golf Data Tech, and it really is amazing what the numbers showed in terms of the growth of the game in 2020. And I really suggest you go back and check out our conversation back in March and enjoy this amazing story. And that information about custom fitting is crucial. It does help, and players really do enjoy the results. Before we go, this past weekend, we were given a reminder of the greatness of Colin Morikawa as he earned his second major championship in just eight career major starts. It also closed a chapter where we experienced seven majors in a 12-month span, with Colin winning the first and last of those events. I said last year that he is a star, and he has proven that to be the case. However, this week we also saw an unfortunate display of pure cluelessness from Bryson DeChambeau, who blamed a first-round score of 71 on his driver. This indictment of his equipment is astonishing, considering the input he delivers himself to every aspect of the club. From the jumbo grips to his custom shaft designs to the Cobra golf head, Bryson is intimately involved in every aspect of his equipment journey. But you don't have to believe me. Here on the range, we've talked with the folks from Cobra Golf about the input that comes from the 2020 U.S. Open champion. Here's Vice President of Research and Development Tom Olsavsky on the range in July of last year. You know, Bryson talks to us a lot of times, you know, calling us up uh, at, almost at any hour <laughs> to say, hey, what about this idea? You know, or what about that idea? You know, and he has about uh, three or four of us he has on a, on a direct, you know, cell phone call where he, he, he just wants to talk product. You know, Bryson is really technical and really into product. So, you know, that's one of the things that he's he's fun to talk to. It's a little bit challenging at times, but certainly fun and and challenges us, which is good. Does that sound like a brand that tries to stay away from every bit of input they may receive from DeChambeau? I think not. Here is the head of Cobra Architecture, Jose Miraflor, commenting on the relationship between Tom Olsavsky and Bryson DeChambeau. They're both mad scientists, right? But yes, Bryson brings a whole new level of, of um, being inquisitive to the game, right? Never under, never underestimate his ability to go beyond what is possible to make this game not only easier for him, but easier for everybody else. That's his goal. I've had many dinners with Bryce and ask him, listen, buddy, what's your goal? In the end result, when you leave this world, what do you want to leave? You know, and you want to leave like multiple major winners and all that. He's, and he, of course, he wants that. But what he loves in this game, similar to me, making the game easier for other people, he would like to make the game easier for more people, whether it's one length getting more popular, whether it's designing a, a, a driver or an iron that makes it a lot easier to hit a golf ball 220 yards, 250 yards, whatever your yardage is that you struggle with, that's his goal is to make something easier to do. And I, I applaud him for that. You know, he's not just in it for himself. Of course he is. He wants to be the best. And first and foremost, he's got to play great, but he's always looking out for other people too. And will he call you at 11 o'clock at night? Not me so far, but yes, he <laughs> will call guys like Tio and Tim down in R&D. I always get the cool texts and calls at the more timely timelines, not, not, not at 11 o'clock at night. Here's the irony. Bryson wants to help amateur golfers. These guys both said it. But if a teaching professional happened upon a standard amateur swinging from his heels at full speed like Bryson does, the pro would immediately recommend, dial it down. You don't need to swing driver on every tee, and you can play positional golf. 
With Bryson in his natural length, he can still dominate, but he needs to use more common sense. The first thing he has to do is quit the finger pointing. As the saying goes, when one finger is pointing outwards, three others are pointing back at you. Sometimes clubs are a bad fit, but not in this case, not with this player. He wants to own the science, so he had better own the results. Of course, we continue to share what's new in golf equipment, and you can learn all about that with the Golf Spotlight. We are dropping new features all the time, looking at clubs, accessories, footwear, and more. Go to thegolfspotlight.com, click on the YouTube subscribe button, and turn on those notifications so you never miss one of our features. There is a lot to catch up on. Stay up to date on the range by following us on Instagram at The Golf Spotlight. We're also on Twitter at Golf Spotlight, and we welcome your comments everywhere. You've listened this far, so subscribe to The Range on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or iHeart. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. That'll do it for this episode of The Range, so let's hit the course. I know it's busy. The data tells us that. But it means courses are going to be around for a nice long time. And that is awesome. We'll talk to you next time, right here on The Range. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.